This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Pitney Bowes. No matter what your small office needs or sends, Pitney Bowes SendPro C200 has you covered. The C200 lets you send mail and packages right from your desk. Plus, save three cents a letter and up to 39% off retail shipping rates. Start saving today and get a free 60-day trial of a Pitney Bowes C200. Visit online at pb.com slash science mag. That's P as in Pitney, B as in Bose, dot com slash science mag. Terms apply. See site for details. This week's episode is also brought to you by Rivers of Oil. This is a new podcast from Minnesota Public Radio News, and it takes a look at the hidden world of the oil pipelines that flow beneath our feet. The show explores why we're now on the forefront of an epic tug of war between our dependence on oil and the risks that oil poses to the future of our world. More importantly, it'll help you understand the role we play in the story. You can find Rivers of Oil wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 29, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, David Grimm has a story on sharing more about how and why animals are used in labs in an attempt to counter animal activists and win back the public. Ken Wachter talks about a mortality plateau in extremely old people. Turns out, once you hit 105, your risk of dying does not continue to rise. All you got to do is get there. And Jen Goldbeck is back with our monthly book segment. She talks with Simon Winchester about his book, The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. First up, we have David Grimm. He's here with a story, a new story on animal research. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sarah. Here in the U.S., public opinion about animal studies appears to be on the move. A poll last year recorded a substantial change since 2001. Back then, 65% of adults found animal studies morally acceptable. As of 2017, only 51% feel that way. And this changing attitude appears to be having an effect on policy. Like what, Dave? Well, Sarah, there's a couple of new animal advocacy organizations on the scene. When people think of animal rights or animal advocacy organizations, often they think of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or the Humane Society of the United States. One of these new outfits is called the White Coat Waste Project, which just uh, came into being a few years ago. Its shtick is basically 
trying to capture conservative voters and politicians as well as liberals. So not only do they talk about animal torture inside laboratories, but they also talk about animal research being a waste of taxpayer money. There's another group called the Rescue Plus Freedom Project, and their goal is basically to also try to get animals out of labs. They've been advocating for laws at the state level around the country to what are called beagle freedom bills to basically force researchers to adopt out their lab animals, typically cats and dogs, at the end of research studies. They've had success in eight states so far, two just in the, in the last six months. And the White Coat Waste Project has helped shut down a nicotine study on monkeys at the FDA and also a bunch of canine research at the uh, U.S. Uh, VA system. And all of these efforts have been really opposed by the scientific community, mm-hmm. both at the state and the federal level. And yet these animal advocacy groups keep on winning. Right. And so there's this change in public opinion and there's some concern that, you know, as it dips below 50 percent, which is what is projected, a lot of laws are going to come into effect. And that's going to have a serious that's going to cause serious problems for researchers. Yeah. Researchers are really worried that funding is going to dry up, that when public opinion reaches this tipping point, it's going to get a lot harder to do animal research. And so they're really trying to come up with a way to combat a lot of this stuff that's been happening, not only in public opinion, but also in uh, the legislatures as well. Okay. So one of the places you focus on in your story that's trying this, uh, I guess we call it a transparency approach, was out in Oregon. So you got to visit a different kind of primate research facility for once. Right. This is the Oregon National Primate Research Center. It's one of the uh, biggest, it actually is the biggest primate research center in the country. It's located in Beaverton, Oregon, just a few uh, miles outside of Portland. And their whole thing is transparency. And what they mean by that is they've got about 5,000 monkeys there. And what they do is they actually bring the public in to take a look at the monkeys in their habitat, to take a look at them in their, the places that they live, to also meet the scientists there. And the scientists talk to visitors. Sometimes it's high school students. When I was there, it was a group of high school, high school students. Sometimes it's rotary clubs. Sometimes it's wedding parties. Just mm-hmm. anybody who wants to visit, every day of the year, they offer tours. And the goal is let's break down these barriers because labs have traditionally, at least in the past couple of decades, been pretty shy about their animal research, right. not posting a lot about it on the web, not talking about it a lot in their press releases, and certainly not inviting the public into the laboratories or even into their animal facilities to see what's going on. So this organ center is really at the forefront of what a lot of advocates are saying that a lot of other research facilities in the U.S. should be doing, which is being a lot more transparent, a lot more proactive in engaging the public. Here are the animals we use, and here's why we use them. Now, that's a standalone facility. Their main thing is animal research. But there are animal research labs all over the country, especially in universities. And that's been, there's a long history of universities kind of hushing up any animal research. Is that something that you see changing? Right. And one of the big motivators for that was, you know, a lot of extreme animal activism in the 80s and 90s, even not just, you know, protests and letter writing campaigns, but even, you know, car bombings and things like that. That made a lot of scientists and universities very shy about, you know, even though they felt they were doing very important work, shy about promoting that. And so one of the goals is like the Oregon Primate Center, Let's talk more about the animals that we use. You know, even if we don't let the public come in on a tour, if people come to our website, you know, they should be able to see all the animals we're using. But more importantly, why we're using them, what therapies they're leading to, you know, what we do to them. You know, as one of the, the, the people I talked to in the story says, it's always worse in people's mind when a lot of public hears animal research or animal experimentation. They conjure up these very sort of 
almost like sci-fi frightening images, which aren't always the case. And the researchers say, you know, if, if people really saw what we were doing, they wouldn't be as willing to buy into some of what they see as propaganda from the animal rights, the animal advocacy community. Is there any evidence that, you know, this transparency approach, letting people into labs, letting people see what's happening, you know, with animal research in much more detail, is there any evidence that that works to sway public opinion? So the UK has actually been kind of ahead on this. You know, they started doing this a few years ago. Um, they launched this thing called the Concordat, which a lot of UK institutions sign on to. In fact, the majority have signed on to, which basically they promised to be much more open. And what the UK has seen is, is since that happened, there's been an uptick for the first time in years in support for animal research. And one of the sources I quote in the story says there's also been a lot less of negative news stories mm -hmm. in the press about animal research. Now, that's just a correlation. Right. But, you know, the U.S. looks at that and says, well, you know, it seems to have had success in the U.K. Will it work here as well? I mean, but in the past couple of months, you've been reporting on, you know, the changes in the status of chimps in research. And then there have been some stories that come out about you know, how often inspections are going to happen in labs and, you know, where those results are going to be posted and how often, you know, it doesn't seem like that is the trend in terms of like animal research in the U.S. right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, the animal researchers, animal facilities have been pretty shy. And so I think the big open question is, A, is transparency the answer? Is that the way to sort of bring the public back to combat some of these animal activist campaigns? But B, are scientists and, you know, universities in the U.S., actually willing to do that? Mm -hmm. You know, are they willing to sort of expose themselves? Are they willing to expose themselves in a way they haven't for decades and sort of risk, you know, maybe more animal activist activity, but perhaps along with that, get more public understanding of what they're actually doing and why they're doing it. Anything else on the site this week you want to mention, Dave? Yes, yeah, sir. We've got a story about how the Maya may have used chocolate as money. Also a story about why male scientists are more likely to be referred to by their last name than female scientists. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a big proposed funding increase for the National Institutes of Health, and also a U.S. judge that has tossed out climate lawsuits by California cities, but still says the science is sound. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. All right. Thanks again, Dave. David Grimm is the online news editor for science. He writes about animal research transparency this week at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned for an interview with Ken Wachter about his paper on a plateau in human mortality once you get out to about 105. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by LinkedIn Jobs. If you've ever had to hire someone, if you're going through the process of interviewing and recruiting, it can be tough to find a good match. That's where LinkedIn Jobs comes in. LinkedIn is already the world's largest professional network. Everybody's on there. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already using it, and they check it. They don't go to job boards every day, but they might be talking to people on LinkedIn or connecting with colleagues there. And so that's the opportunity for them to see your job posting. If you ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year, they rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So if you're involved in the hiring process, if you're looking for a candidate, go to linkedin.com slash science mag and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash science mag for $50 off. Terms and conditions apply. This week's episode is also brought to you by KiwiCo. 
KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. This is perfect for a rainy Saturday afternoon or an after-school project where you get to spend time with your kid, being creative, learning about the world, and it's all in there. You don't have to go to the store and buy a hammer. You don't have to go to the craft store and get felt. You can just spend the time doing this fun thing. KiwiCo's mission is to do that, to provide you with tools and your kids with tools to become innovators and a foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. And there are five different types of projects, something for kids all the way from ages two or three to nine to 16. And you can give a KiwiCo subscription to the kid in your life and that will make them creative, help them learn, and quite possibly make you their favorite person. KiwiCo wants kids to be fearless innovators. They design projects to help them develop their creativity. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com slash magazine. Again, that's kiwico, K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash magazine to try KiwiCo for free. Human mortality rates increase with age, right up until about 80. And then weird things start to happen. And there's been a longstanding debate about those things. Does your chance of dying keep increasing with age, or do people eventually plateau? Ken Wachter and colleagues conducted a careful study of lifespan in people over the age of 105 in Italy to look at the far end of mortality curves. Ken Wachter is here to take us through it. Hi. Hello. Glad to be here. What are some of the funky things that happen when you look at people's risk of mortality over the age of 80? We all know as we age, our health is getting worse and our risks of death are getting worse faster and faster. But we're finding at extreme ages, they finally stop getting worse. They're bad. They're very bad. Our Italians have a 50-50 chance of dying over the age of 105 in the next coming year. Right. So it's not that rates go down and if you live to 105, you're in clover. <laughs> Going into this paper, you know, what has been the controversy about the mortality plateau? This has been very controversial mm-hmm. because over the last 200 years, demographers have seen mortality rates leveling off. And up to a few years ago, a decade or two ago, when they looked harder and harder at the data, they saw that that was just bad data. Old people exaggerate their ages. And so back in 1825, they saw something like this, but it was bad data responsible. So settling this question, are the plateaus real or are we still seeing bad data? That's been sort of the leading controversy in mortality studies for a little bit. The great thing about this study, why we went into these Italian data, are the quality of the data. What makes the data from Italy so special? It's a complete enumeration of all Italian inhabitants over 105, so it's not a sample. Right. And there is municipal registration, so every year on the 1st of January, every person's age is recorded all over Italy in the same uniform way. And then we have, for most of the sample, birth certificates, 
105 years and more ago, and we have death certificates and certifications, and then we have ages of death down to single days. So we're not bunching together everything that happens in a year and then using fancy statistics to adjust for changes during the year. We've got daily ages at death, and that's very rare. These are the best data, I think, at extreme ages we've ever had. What did you find with this special data set? What were you able to to see that others hadn't seen before? big thing we found is that these rates over the age of 105 are no longer going up. They're very high, but they're level. So this is a case where there's a real plateau. Huh. And how does that compare to other animals that have been studied? The best work has been done on flies and worms Mm -hmm. and species that are very unlike us. And in flies and worms, and now in many mammals also, mortality rates do level off at extreme ages. But you've got to have huge populations to see this. For our Italians, there were about a million people born back in 1900, 1905 in Italy every year. And we're seeing of those about three or four hundred of a million reach the age of 105. One thing I noticed about your population was that of about 3,800 people, only 450 were male. Does that bias your data in any way? No, it doesn't bias the data. It reflects what we strongly know about human (laughs) survival, which is that there is almost universal female advantage in human survival. And that is a subject that demographers study very hard, must have roots deep in evolution. Mm -hmm. But among the extremely old, almost all of them, are women. (laughs) So how does this finding relate to some of the big questions in biology right now? For example, what does this tell us about the limits on human lifespan? The fact of the plateau goes along with another finding in our paper, which is that even at these extreme ages, there are slight improvements over time. So mortality rates stop increasing with age over 105, but they go down a little bit with time. So people born toward the end of our set of people toward uh, 1908 or so have slightly better chances of life than people born in the early times in the end of the 1890s. And that strongly suggests that we're not seeing any limit to human lifespan in sight. That doesn't mean there couldn't be a limit, but it's not around the corner. If even at 105, chances of survival are getting better, then we're not pushing up against some hard limit. Okay. You mentioned evolution, you know, in passing at this point, but what are some of the pressures and adaptations that affect longevity? The research we're doing is very much grounded in the new field of evolutionary demography. Hmm. So a lot of the interest among the public is, can you eat something different? What's the role of diet? What's the role of exercise? (laughs) We're looking at something different. We're looking back 10,000, 20,000 years to effects that came into our genomes that are passed on in our heritage from long ago when the human environment was a lot different from now. And so the fact of these plateaus really informs how we understand 
the overall disadvantages that are passed on in our genetic heritage. Can you expand on that a little bit? So every time a baby is born, uh, it carries most of the genes and genome from its parents, but there are a few mistakes that get in. These are mutations. If the mutations are serious, do something big, then the fetus won't survive. But there are a lot of tiny little glitches that get in, maybe 50 per generation, something like that. Tiny little glitches. Well, over tens of thousands of years, we all start carrying a load, it's called a genetic load, of slightly less than good versions of our genes. Mm -hmm. Just means your repair processes or your immune system doesn't stay up to snuff. Right. And each of us carries those packages, those loads of genetic imperfections. Now I want you to think about natural selection. As natural selection looks at how many copies of genes and mutations are passed on to the next generation. And if you're carrying a big load and it affects you when you're young, mm -hmm. you're going to pass on fewer copies. But if these bad things don't affect you till you're old, past ages of childbearing or past ages of grandparenting, because grandparents are important to the survival of offspring too, but things that affect you when you're old, those things tend to get passed on more easily. So okay, got it. <laughs> natural selection gets rid of the things that are bad for you when you're young, but it leaves you carrying a bunch of things that are bad for you when you're old. Okay. And so this is one of the fundamental facts about evolution that affects flies and worms just as it affects us. It's a basic, fundamental reason for senescence. Where does the plateau come in then? So the genetic load that I've been telling you about, that helps explain why risks of death are going up faster and faster, in fact, in an exponential fashion from, for us, perhaps age 40 to age 80. But the fact of the plateaus indicates that something is holding in check those bad outcomes at extreme ages. And there are two kinds of selection to think about. One is that people with more bad things in their genes, they're dying off earlier. Right. So the people who survive are less frail. You get a group of people at extremely old age enriched for good genetic heritage, as well as for good life experience. So that's called demographic selection. That's part of what we measure with the plateau. The other feature in the plateau is that even these things that mostly are bad for you when you're old, by things I mean mutated genes, even those things that are bad for you mostly when you're old are a little bad for you when you're young. And so those early age effects, predominantly late age acting mutations, those hold the number of late age acting mutations in check, or we think they do. Mm -hmm. So the theory that talks about genetic load also predicts the likelihood of seeing plateaus at extreme ages. Because of the way this works out with reproduction, you're never going to see a selection for super old people, long living people, it sounds like. No, no, no. Uh, you, you won't see that directly. But we have to keep in mind that we're carrying around genetic programs that were written out, improved 
tens of thousands of years ago, many thousands of generations. Evolution is a, is a slow process. And our environment, when we lived in caves and other places, were quite different. And there hasn't been a lot of genetic change since that time. What seems to be happening is that genetic effects that were originally important down in ages of parenting and grandparenting at much younger ages have now been pushed back to be affecting the very old. So there's this saying, 70 is the new 60, Mm -hmm. 50 is the new 40. Well, that has some scientific point to it. What we're seeing at extreme ages was probably imprinted at younger ages. Our environments have gotten so much more protective and so much easier compared to pre-Ice Age times that what we consider only little problems could have been settled much younger in those times. So our protected environments mean that the genetic effects that were being honed by natural selection at younger ages are now affecting the extreme ages that we see. Or at least this is what we think. This is where the theory is going now. Very cool. So um, I think we've gone through what I see as you know some of the main points. Is there anything that I'm missing from this paper that we should talk about? I think you've you've hit the main parts of this well. Uh, let me mention that uh, the, the real begetters of this paper are Elisabetta Barbie and Francesco Lagona mm-hmm. and the data from Marco Massilli that Jim Vopel and I are contributing as senior authors. So we help put the whole thing together. But it's really Elisabetta and Francesco, who are distinguished Italian demographers, who deserve a lot of the credit. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much for talking with me. Okay, thank you for having me. uh, Thank you for your interest in the paper. Ken Wachter is an emeritus professor of demography and statistics at the University of California, Berkeley. You can find links to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Next up is our monthly book segment on Simon Winchester's work, The Perfectionist, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the June book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Jen Golbeck, and this month we're reading The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World by Simon Winchester. I'm joined by Simon Winchester, and I want to say I loved this book, but when I got it, I thought it was going to be one of many books that have come out about kind of titans of industry who have developed new things, founded great companies. But the premise of the book is actually a lot different than that. The title is The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. And precision really is the focus of the book. So could you talk about that specifically? Why precision and what kind of grabbed you about it? I think the premise was basically to look at at the history of this somewhat invisible notion that um, it's a bit like, you know, the languages we speak or the air we breathe. We don't think about it too much, but it's been an essential for 250 years now since the first precise device was invented in 1776. But it's rather more than that, I hope. I I wanted the book to question the the premise, to, to question whether precision and the pursuit of precision and the worship and the reverence and the possible fetishization of precision might be an altogether a good thing and whether we're losing sight of 
of craftsmanship and the joy of the imprecise. You do talk a lot about important engineers, but the book also has a personal story throughout it. Can you talk about your father and his influence on your interest? Yes. Well, my father was indeed a precision engineer, something I, I must confess during until maybe a decade ago, I didn't think too much of. He made tiny electric motors, mainly for the Royal Navy, for the guidance systems of torpedoes. Once I remember, and it has remained in my mind ever since, fascinated when he brought home a set of um, what are called gauge blocks or Joe, Johansson blocks, and they're metal stainless steel blocks, of about a hundred of them in decreasing sizes. And the thing about them is that they're very, very precisely made and they can be stacked together in various combinations. And what he wanted to show me was that even though these blocks were not magnetic because they were made of stainless steel, if you stacked one on top of another, it was impossible to pull them apart. It was as if they were magnetized, or almost as if the two blocks had become one block. And it turns out that that was nearly literally true because they were so impeccably flat. There were, when you put one on top of another, there were no sort of asperities on the surface which would cause air to leak in and cause weakness that would allow you to pull them apart. The only way you could get them apart was by sliding them one off the other. But I was very impressed that something could be made so flat that two pieces of metal put one on top of the other could effectively bond together molecule to molecule. And that has remained with me ever since as an indication of what real precision is truly all about. I'd like to look at some examples in the book. I think one story a lot of us are familiar with is the Hubble Space Telescope and how it didn't work like it was supposed to when it was first launched. So talk about what was the precision engineering problem there how precise did it have to be? Why did it get screwed up? And then how did they fix it? Well, Hubble, a bold, but if you like, simple experiment. It's a, a, a typical sort of Cassegrain reflecting telescope. And it would have worked absolutely perfectly had the mirror been ground properly. Some paint had been applied to the top of a tool and a bit of that paint had chipped off. And so the measurement made by a laser was out by one fiftieth of the diameter of a human hair, which meant that this mirror, which was an enormous thing, eight or 10 feet in diameter, was tiny little bit flatter than it should have been, but a microscopically amount flatter. Anyway, it was sent up into space, signals started, the light started flooding in down the tube, it was reflected to the secondary mirror and came down to Earth. And the observers in Baltimore, who were looking for what they called first light, the first appearance of light from this almighty telescope, were flabbergasted and utterly dismayed when everything was out of focus. So once we realized that Hubble wasn't working like it was supposed to, what was the solution that was put in place? Engineers who were passionately keen that this telescope should be made to work devised a system whereby they would effectively put on contact lenses. That's a very crude way of putting it. But they would insert corrective optics into the, into the, uh, the body of the telescope such that the signals the light flooding into this mirror would be corrected as it was reflected. So three years after it was put up, they sent up a repair team at considerable cost, and lo and behold, brilliantly, it was repaired. And the images that have come down from Hubble ever since, right up to now in 2018, have been impeccable. If you could put this book in front of anyone, who would it be? I, if you like, this is going to sound a slightly conceited thing to say, but what I like to specialize in is making people persuading people 
that things are interesting that they didn't think were interesting. I'd written a book on 19th century dictionaries, a book on geology. I used to be a geologist, and um, I think most people think, oh, rocks for jocks, a boring, boring subject. But the map that changed the world, which was about the old fellow that created the first ever map, geological map in the world, sold like hot cakes. So what I like to do, and as I say, forgive me if it sounds conceited, is to take a subject which interests me, which I, you know, my inner nerd comes out, and persuade people that it's actually super interesting and that the people involved in it are extraordinary characters who have done remarkable things. So the person I would like to win over is the skeptic who would say, oh, engineering, I can think of nothing more tedious, but I'll pick this book up. And my word, it is actually much more interesting than I thought. Well, Simon Winchester, it was great talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us. The book is The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World, and it's out this month. And that's it for June. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can leave us your comments on the Books at All website on the Science Magazine website. And we'll be back next month with another book for your stack. Thanks for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen to us on the Science site, where you can also read news and research related to the stories discussed in each episode. And that's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.